Well, I'm especially excited for tonight's discipleship meeting because during our time together this evening, I have the privilege of addressing several questions that have been presented to me by a variety of brothers and sisters in Christ. It is my utmost desire that my responses to each of the questions that have been presented to me will prove useful and edifying to all that will listen to the recording of this question and answer session. So as we prepare to dive into each of the questions that will be covered tonight, allow me to open us up with a word of prayer and to ask for the Lord's blessing on this time. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, it has been nearly two months since our last question and answer night, and it is with great joy that we embark upon another designated time for addressing questions that have been presented by those who attend our weekly discipleship gatherings. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will enable me to answer each of the questions that are presented tonight in a manner that is faithful to Scripture and that every listener who hears this recording will be richly edified by the content of tonight's lesson. We are grateful that while there are many things we cannot know on this side of eternity, your word provides us with a light for our path in this life. And Lord God, we rejoice in knowing that if we earnestly commit ourselves to studying your word and hiding its truth in our hearts, then you are gracious in enabling us to become closer in our relationship with you and to become further conformed into the moral character of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God, would our growth and in intellectual knowledge and would our ability to answer biblically-based questions ultimately attend to each of those ends to lead us to deeper communion with our Creator and to lead us to greater holiness in our lifestyles. We ask for your blessing on this time of study, and we commit it to you in the name of your only begotten Son, our great High Priest, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so as we get the ball rolling here in our question and answer night, let us look at the first question that's been presented, question one. What is evangelism, and how should believers evangelize? That is a very important question, and a question that has generated a lot of discussion over the course of the past couple of years here in our immediate spheres of influence. I know that many of you here who regularly attend our Thursday night gatherings have had the subject of evangelism brought up in your local church context, so uh, really grateful to be able to answer that question this evening. I think we should start with the definition of evangelism. Evangelism is the public proclamation of the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's evangelism in a nutshell. It is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout this world, whether from a pulpit or in the context of one-on-one -on -one or small group discussion. It's to advance the gospel of Christ to those in our lives. And we find in Scripture that all believers are commanded to evangelize, even though not all believers possess the spiritual gift of evangelism. There's two familiar texts that I think make this point abundantly clear. Um, Ephesians 4, 11 to 13, and Matthew 28, 18 to 20 are the texts that come to my mind off the cuff here. And um, I want us to look at both of those texts as we think through this idea of evangelism. We find in Ephesians 4, 11 to 13 that there are some Christians who are uniquely gifted for the task of evangelism, 
But we also find in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, that even for those who are not uniquely spiritually empowered to carry out the task of evangelism, they are still called to evangelize nonetheless as those who are followers of Christ and for those who are members of the kingdom of God. So let us look at both of those texts here as we answer this preliminary question on evangelism. Start with Ephesians 4, 11 to 13, which is specifically in a reference to those who have the unique gifting, the unique spiritual gifting for evangelism. Paul writes in that text the following. He says that he, referring to Christ, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, And here's why he gave these particular offices or these particular giftings in the church. He gave them for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So we ultimately know that that reality that's being expressed there in verse 13, this idea of attaining to the unity of the faith, attaining to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's not going to ultimately be fulfilled until Christ comes back to make all things new with the new heavens and the new earth, and we see him as he is, and we as his people become glorified. So until that moment of glorification and dwelling with Christ and all the redeemed and holy angels in the new heavens and the new earth, these offices, apostle, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers, they serve a distinct purpose for equipping the saints for the work of service and to build up the body of Christ for ministry. So this text, again, clearly emphasizes and demonstrates that there are those who are uniquely called and gifted by God the Holy Spirit to take the gospel to all the ends of the earth and to serve ultimately in this office or this specific role of evangelist. But we also find that even if a Christian isn't uniquely spiritually gifted and empowered to serve in the role of evangelist, They're still called to evangelize. Listen to what Christ said. We're Baptists, so we're all familiar with the Great Commission mandate. Look at what Christ said in that Matthew 28, 18-20 passage. This is to his earliest disciples after he he has been resurrected from the grave and he is preparing to ascend into the kingdom of heaven Christ says these words. He says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, those who have become disciples and those who have been baptized, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Christ is saying, Hey, earliest disciples, I want you to go to all the nations, baptize them, and I want you to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you, which also includes this command to evangelize and make disciples. So all Christians, all those who have been saved by the sovereign grace of the trying God after coming to saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, when those believers are saved, they are now called to go out and 
engage in the act of sharing the gospel with others so that they might be saved and to help others grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ to be discipled. So, my friends, we all have a fundamental role as Christians to evangelize. Some of you might serve as an evangelist someday. God may call you to that role. You may be uniquely gifted for being an evangelist, but all of us, regardless of our calling, regardless of our specific spiritual gifting, you and I have all been called to evangelize and to disciple. So I hope that's a good 30,000 foot flyover, if you will, of what evangelism is. Now, how should believers evangelize? What should be the methodology or the practice of believers in their efforts to share the gospel of Christ? Well, as is the case with any other Christian practice, evangelism must be directed, informed, and guided by how Scripture instructs the people of God to evangelize. Evangelism must be conducted with a proper view of the gospel of Jesus Christ as set forth in Scripture. This is where evangelism ultimately begins and ends. If Christians do not first possess an accurate, biblically-derived understanding of the gospel message, then they simply will not evangelize in a way that is effective or pleasing to their Heavenly Father. That is to say that it's possible, despite being well-meaning, it is possible to evangelize in a way that's not pleasing to God or that's not biblically informed. And ultimately, nothing is more displeasing to God than not having an accurate understanding of the only message whereby sinners can be saved and forgiven of their sins. You see, it is only when one has truly come to grips with the gospel message for themselves that they will see the need and understand the sense of urgency of why Christians ought to evangelize in the first place. So in the final analysis, only the gospel of Jesus Christ can transform a sinner from the inside out. And while it's certainly true that a Christian's lifestyle of personal holiness or their testimony can serve as a means that God uses to plant seeds in a lost sinner's mind and heart. It is only a true gospel message as rooted and grounded in Scripture that will ultimately result in bringing them to a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. The gospel alone, when faithfully proclaimed, is the only means that enables lost, perishing sinners to be saved. And one of the clearest testimonies, one of the clearest depictions of this reality is championed by the Apostle Paul in Romans 10, 13 to 17. This is one of my favorite texts. It comes right off the heels of Paul writing arguably the strongest affirmation of God's sovereignty and salvation found throughout the Bible. He says in Romans 9, God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. He's sovereign over who gets saved and who doesn't get saved. He's chosen from before the foundation of the world every sinner who would ever believe and every sinner who would ever not believe, just like he's chosen from before the foundation of the world which angels would fall and which angels would remain loyal to their creator. 
And he comes off the heels of that powerful chapter on divine sovereignty, and he commissions the church in Rome, and us by extension as readers of the book of Romans, he commissions believers to take the gospel to all the ends of the world, whether of Jewish ethnicity or Gentile ethnicity. He calls all believers to go and share the gospel because it's the gospel and the gospel alone that God has ordained and has been pleased to use to bring spiritually dead sinners like you and me to saving faith in Christ at the appointed time. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 10 verses 13 to 17. Paul says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a guaranteed promise. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you would call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And then he goes into these rhetorical questions. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? The answer is, you can't do any of these things. You can't call on Christ if they have not yet believed in Christ. They cannot believe in Christ if they've not yet heard of Christ. And they can't hear of Christ if a preacher or an evangelist does not go out with the gospel. And then he quotes from the Old Testament to further substantiate his argumentation. Paul says, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And then he cites uh, a, a kind of a um, opposite statement about the consequences of rejecting the gospel. He says, verse 16, however, they did not all heed the good news for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So he says, verse 15, go out, preach the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Verse 16, also be aware of the fact as you go out to preach the gospel, not everybody that encounters the gospel are going to believe. Not everybody you share the gospel with are going to be saved. But nevertheless, verse 17, here's another promise. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ or by the word of God. My friends, when the word of God goes forth, God is faithful to save sinners. He is faithful to save the people at the appointed time who hear the gospel message proclaimed by ordinary believers like you and me, even if we don't have the unique spiritual gifting of evangelist. That's not what we've been called to do vocationally or even as the bulk of our ministry. God can still use our feeble efforts of sharing the gospel, sharing the word of God with people to bring them to saving faith at the appointed time. So I pray that would be an encouragement to you. And I pray that these realities we've just considered from Romans 10 and, of course, all of the uh, things that I've said in this long-winded response to this opening question, I pray that all of this would lead to us ultimately becoming more zealous in our efforts to present sinners with their only hope to be forgiven of their sins and that they might become the men and women that God has created them to be, just as we ourselves in, in light of us having come to saving faith in Christ, we have begun the process of becoming the men and women God's called us to be because we know him savingly. And by his grace, we are walking with him through the journey of sanctification. So that's the first question. And I hope that I'm not as long-winded in the rest of the questions, but that is such an important question. I'm glad we were able to begin with it as we 
as we have this question and answer night. Let's look at question two that's been presented to me. Question two for our Q&A session. How do churches grow according to the Bible? Well, ultimately, as I think about this question, I think it's important to note that a church's numerical growth is left up to the sovereign prerogatives of the triune God. You've got to start there when you think about church growth. There's been so many books, so many podcasts, so many sermons that have been presented throughout the past, really, century with the, with the rise of the emerging church and the rise of pragmatism and, and really the emphasis on numbers and, and the externals of ministry. There's been all of this rhetoric about church growth and increasing baptisms and, and increasing church membership. And though those are important realities to think about, I think there has been a tendency over the past century to lose sight of the fact that numerical growth, it's not something that's ultimately in our hands. It's something that's in God's hands. So we start with the sovereign prerogatives of God when we think about church growth. But we also recognize that the New Testament record seems to indicate that God does bless churches with both spiritual and numerical growth as a church commits itself to purity and doctrine and practice. So when I think of Places we could go to in Scripture to prove this point. I think one of the clearest that we can examine together, church growth according to Scripture, is found in Acts 2, 42 to 47. So if you have your Bible tonight, you can flip over there to Acts 2, 42 to 47. And in doing so, we see church growth, numerical growth that is pleasing to God. And again, I just want to say this by way of preface. There's many churches out there that are booming and growing, but they don't have God's favor. They're growing because the the church leaders are appealing to unbelievers with their philosophy of ministry. Their church is catered to the desires of the flesh and to the, the lusts and the longings of the flesh, not to that of which is pure in in, in, in its expression of worship and pure in its devotion and commitment to the word of God. So there's a fundamental difference between church growth that is pleasing to God and that is consistent with how scripture describes numerical growth and how man is able to manufacture numerical growth by his own devices that are divorced from the authority and testimony of scripture. So I just wanted to make sure I was clear in saying that before we look at this question any further and before we look to God's word. Acts 2, 42 to 47. I'm going to read this text and hopefully make a few helpful comments as it pertains to this question. Verse 42, Luke notes that the earliest followers of Christ, this is right off the heels of Peter's sermon at Pentecost, 3,000 souls have been added to the initial converts, the initial disciples of Christ, and those who followed him closely during his earthly life and ministry. There's been 3,000 souls added, verse 42. And these Christians were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. 
and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So having just read this incredible account from the book of Acts, I am wholeheartedly convinced that if a local church is faithfully devoted to these same practices we just read of, then that church will experience gradual church growth, and that church growth will be pleasing and honoring in God's sight. A church that is devoted to the Word of God, namely the apostles' teaching. A church that is hospitable and welcoming and and engages in biblically grounded fellowship. The breaking of bread, as many commentators see as a reference to the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. So any church that is faithful to the biblical model of the Lord's Supper has God's favor. Prayer. If a church is growing apart from a vibrant prayer ministry modeled by the spiritual leadership of that local church and by the culture of the members that are in that local church, then you can know that that is not a church that is growing in accordance with God's favor and with his word. Every church that it has God's favor and that is growing and is growing by virtue of God blessing their faithfulness to his word is going to be a place that is committed to prayer. So you've got to have faithfulness to scripture, the apostles teaching. You've got to have a hospitable, charitable, welcoming environment of fellowship. You've got to have faithfulness to the biblical prescription of the Lord's Supper. You've got to have prayer. Verses 44 and 45, you've got to be a church that's committed to meeting the needs of those within the body of Christ. And then by necessary consequences and thinking about the surrounding community that that church dwells in, it's got to be a church that's willing and able as much as possible to meet the needs of people in the community who express their needs to members of the church. The church has got to be the hands and feet of Christ to the surrounding community in which it inhabits. So if you have those components here, you will have a church, even though the growth may be slow and may be very, very, very gradual, you will have growth eventually. God will be faithful to bless a church that is grounded on his word. But nevertheless, just in trying to put a bow in my response to this question, I think the following quote that I've heard many times from Dr. John MacArthur hits the nail right on the head. Christians, particularly those in local church leadership, they need to focus on the depth of ministry and let God take care of the breadth of ministry. Did you catch that? Focus on the depth of the ministry of the local church. Let God take care of the breadth. In other words, though it's important to consider numerical growth, it's important to consider the direction that a local church is heading in regard to its influence on a community. What's more important to God and what's more consistent with his word is a church that wants a pure, 
and unwavering steadfast expression of submission to the authority of Scripture and allowing Scripture to regulate every aspect of that local church's ministry. If a church will be faithful to God's word and to surrendering to the authority of his word in their expression of local church worship, that is far more important than doing anything in your power to have the church grow numerically. Let God take care of the numerical growth. You, church leader, you, lay Christian, speaking to myself here as well, we as the body of Christ need to be committed to the depth of our ministry, to the purity of our religious expression, both inside and outside of the church. And we can trust in accordance with the sovereign and infinitely wise prerogatives of our Heavenly Father, He'll take care of the growth. So that brings us to the conclusion of the second question for tonight. And brings us now to question three. Question three, what are some of the most important ideas and practices that you think cultivate health in a local church? It's a very, very good question. I love this question. When I consider the health of a local church holistically, and I think of important ideas and practices that can really nurture a healthy local church environment, I believe that the Reformed and Puritan forefathers of the 16th and 17th centuries hit the nail right on the head. When they thought through this issue, when they reflected on the comprehensive teaching of Scripture, the Reformers and the Puritans came to the conclusion that God's primary and normative manner of saving, sanctifying, and sustaining His people is through His, quote-unquote, ordinary means of grace. That might be new terminology for you tonight. What are we saying when we refer to God's so-called ordinary means of grace? Well, historically, those ordinary means of grace have been identified in the following ways. The preached word, it's the primary means of grace, the prayer of God's people, the administration of the new covenant ordinances, being baptism and the Lord's Supper, and the execution of church discipline. So what are the key ideas and practices to nurture or cultivate health in a local church? Well, for me, in keeping with the the broader Protestant and Reformed Puritan tradition from the 16th and 17th centuries, I would say that the preached word, godly, or maybe I should say God-exalting, biblically faithful preaching, a culture of a church that is committed to prayer from leadership and laity, the faithful administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper in keeping with how Scripture governs the administration of those ordinances, and of course, the execution of church discipline in the face of unrepentant sin. In fact, it's it's really remarkable one of the earliest Reformed confessions, the Belgic Confession in Article 29, goes so far to say that if those components are not present in a local church context, then that local church is not a true church. Think about that. If a church does not have God-centered, God-exalting, biblically-rooted preaching, if it's not a context where the people of God are committed to prayer, if the New Covenant ordinances are not being administered in keeping with 
the instruction contained in Scripture. And if church discipline is not being administered to safeguard the purity of the church, to be a a hindrance or a preventative measure against unrepentant sin, then that local church cannot identify as a true church. Now, of course, that's not that's not a biblical. Uh, chapter and verse, the Belgic Confession is the result of godly and Bible-saturated men thinking about the overarching teaching of Scripture. So it's not Scripture itself saying that, but I think that's a very important thing to think of because I believe it's faithful to Scripture. No sound Bible teaching, no sound doctrine, no prayer, no recognition of dependency upon God no faithful administration of the New Covenant ordinances, no church discipline to confront unrepentant sin. You take those elements, those means of grace away from a local church, and that local church cannot, in the fullest expression of the term, identify as a true church. So for me, as I think about this third question, I believe that if Christians desire to see a healthy local church, and at the very least, it is fundamental, it is essential for that church to be marked by these ordinary means of grace. And for me, in my opinion, the faithful adherence to the biblically prescribed, biblically rooted means of grace, God-ordained means of grace, faithful adherence to those things will inevitably cultivate spiritual health within a local church, whereas a neglect or a absence of those means of grace is going to result in a church that is spiritually anemic and devoid of power and devoid of God's favor. My friends, you show me whether a church is faithful to the ordinary means of grace, and I'll be able to tell you everything you need to know about the spiritual health of that local church. I'm certainly not a veteran in vocational ministry. I've only been in vocational ministry now for two years. And I've served in local church context as a Christian now for about nine years, give or take. So I've certainly not been around for decades, but I can tell you this, from my time serving as a lay Christian, from my time serving as a a minister of the gospel in a vocational vocational pastoral ministry context and from my study of church history. If a church does not adhere to these ordinary means of grace, that church is going to be anemic, devoid of spiritual power, and devoid of God's favor. And there's going to be a myriad of problems in that context. So, How do we cultivate health in a local church? What ideas, what practices do we use to nurture a healthy local church environment? We need adherence and we need implementation of the ordinary means of grace. Very good question. Very important question. Question four. This, I think, is a good dovetail from the previous question that was presented. What is the greatest danger to the peace and health of the local church? What's the greatest danger to the peace and health of the local church? Well, again, just in keeping with what we said moments ago and and maybe expanding on that a little bit, I would say that the greatest danger to the peace and health of the local church is 
doctrinal ignorance, doctrinal error, and biblically unqualified church leaders. Just to just to sum it up, great. You want a a recipe for damaging the peace and health of a local church. Have a local church that's doctrinally ignorant. Have a church that subscribes, whether willingly or unknowingly, to doctrinal error. And have a church that has biblically unqualified church leaders. Any of those three factors or a combination of those three factors is a church that is in very grave danger regarding their peace and regarding their health. If you were to take the time to review the biannual State of Theology report that's produced by Crossway and Ligonier Ministries, you'll find that, 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 that this is a major issue in our current Western or current American evangelical context. It is absolutely tragic, my friends, that the vast majority of self-identifying Christians simply do not know who God is as he has revealed himself in Scripture, whether by willingly holding to a heretical understanding of God or, uh, uh, or key doctrines of the Christian faith, or just unknowingly holding to heretical understandings of God and key doctrines of the Christian faith. Regardless of where one might fall in that spectrum, the doctrinal health of American evangelicalism is very, very poor in our current 21st century context. And as a result, the church in the West, and more narrowly, the church in America, has never been so spiritually anemic. It's never been so devoid of God's power and God's favor. And then there's the spiritual leadership issue. My friends, I believe that there are far too many elders and deacons serving in local churches all throughout our nation right now who do not meet the biblical qualifications for their roles of spiritual leadership as explicitly specified in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 13, and Titus 1, verses 6 to 9. For those of you who have been coming to these Thursday night gatherings for any period of time, you'll recall that we did an extensive analysis on the biblical qualifications for spiritual leadership in the local church, particularly focusing on the role of elder and the role of deacon. So I'm not going to get into too much of the weeds as far as what the Bible teaches regarding the biblical qualifications for those roles. You can go and, and listen to those lessons on my sermon audio account if you want a refreshment or to the listener who is not familiar with that series. You can access that series on my sermon audio account. would encourage you to do so if you want a biblical perspective on these important offices of spiritual leadership in the local church. I do want to, though, just really quickly read those two key texts just, just so that there is a, a, a biblical precedent for what I'm saying here, at least it's just to turn to Scripture and see how the Bible outlines those qualifications just by way of refreshing our minds. 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 to 13, focusing on the office of elder and the office of deacon says this. Paul writes in verse 1 and following, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, 
not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Verse 7, And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. And now, verse 8 and following, regarding deacons. First Timothy 3, 8 and following, Paul writes, Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith of the clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And then really quickly, let me just flip over to Titus 1, 6 to 9, largely a reiteration of what we found in the 1 Timothy 3 passage with regard to elders, but nevertheless, um, a separate text focusing on this biblical office. For the sake of context and the sake of Paul's flow of thought, let me start in verse 5 and read from there. Verse 5, Titus 1. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, and not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So there you have it, my friends. Again, just a, a flyover, surface-level presentation of the biblical qualifications in the New Testament for the offices of elder and deacon in the local church. So as we begin to land the plane here with regard to this question in terms of the, the danger, the peace and health of the local church and how that narrowly references the local church leadership. My friends, if your church is being led by men who do not meet these biblical qualifications as a habitual pattern of life, those qualifications we just considered from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, if they're not being met as a habitual pattern of life at your church, then you may need to prayerfully consider finding a new church home. A habitual failure for elders and deacons to meet these biblical qualifications indicate that at best, they are Christians who are serving in positions of spiritual leadership that they're just simply not gifted or qualified to serve in. Or at worst, that they could be unbelievers who are serving in positions of spiritual leadership for their own selfish reasons. But my friends, regardless of the case, local churches that are marked by unqualified spiritual leadership or by doctrinally ignorant leaders, they are doomed for recurring problems. And at the end of the day, as goes the spiritual leadership, 
so goes the local church. You can take that to the bank. As goes the spiritual leadership, so goes the local church. So, my friends, be in a local church context insofar or in as much as it depends upon you. Be in a local church context that knows what it believes and why it believes what it believes from Scripture, has a robust doctrinal statement that has been voted on and agreed upon by all members of the local church and is, an, and is being enforced by the spiritual leadership of that local church. You've got to have a church that is doctrinally sound if you're going to have peace and if you're going to have unity and if you're going to have purity in the church. You've got to have doctrinal clarity enforced by the spiritual leaders and agreed to and lived out faithfully by the members. That's got to happen. And of course, you've also got to have biblically qualified spiritual leaders to enforce sound doctrine, to protect from theological error or from sin issues that can creep into the local church. Any of those components, if they're not present, my plea with you would be to prayerfully consider finding a new church home. And that brings us now to question five. The fifth question we'll be covering tonight that's been presented says this. How does church discipline relate to the purity of a local church? <laughs> I guess the, these questions are, are very ecclesiological, and I guess that really fits with a lot of our more recent lessons that we've been doing on Thursday nights. How does church discipline relate to the purity of a local church? Well, for starters, it must be noted that the practice of church discipline has become a very controversial subject in most of our modern churches. Um, if this, just to be completely frank, if the local church is not familiar with the concept of church discipline, then you're going to find that the implementation of church discipline is going to be a very tough pill to swallow initially. This is something that really might take time for the culture of a local church to recognize why church discipline is so important, why it's so necessary in safeguarding and promoting purity in a local church. But be that as it may, the practice of church discipline is a thoroughly biblical practice. It, it is something that is rooted and grounded in any local church that is healthy, that is spiritually vibrant, and that has God's favor. Let me give you a couple of key texts that outline church discipline and how church discipline relates to the purity of a local church. Let's start first text, excuse me. First text we'll look at here, Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 to 17. Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 to 17 outlines the four-step process that local churches are to follow in their administration of church discipline. Listen to what Christ says in that passage. He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more people with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he, tell, or excuse me, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So as we just saw from the teaching of our Lord here, the four-step process of church discipline must be carried out in the context of the local church if that church is going to be faithful to the instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ in regard to confronting unrepentant sin. 
and if I could just put it bluntly, a local church that does not practice church discipline in response to unrepentant sin is either ignorant of the New Testament's mandate to administer it or is willfully disobeying a distinguishing mark that is to undergird faithful churches of Jesus Christ. And I think this is why the Belgic Confession lists church discipline as the mark of a true church. Because it is possible, again, I mentioned earlier, especially in our day, the act of church discipline, it's, it's very controversial, or it, it may not be something that people really understand. They see it as archaic. They really don't have a full-orbed understanding of the biblical basis for it. So that's certainly possible in a lot of churches. But once a church has been educated on this subject, if they refuse to administer church discipline when unrepentant sin is occurring in a person's life or has infiltrated the culture of a local church, they're willfully disobeying a distinguishing mark of a faithful church. They are willfully disobeying the commands of Christ. And as a result, that church is going to suffer and may even wind up losing its lampstand if sin is able to get a foothold in that church. And over the course of time, if left unaddressed, that sin can really corrupt that church to the point of no return. So the Belgic Confession says that a true church, a church that's biblical, a church that has God's favor, there's got to be church discipline as biblically delineated. But Christ wasn't the only one who taught on the value of church discipline related to the purity of the local church. We also find from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 1-13, that there is a, a specific basis for church discipline that gets to the heart of the purity of the local church. Listen to what Paul writes in that text, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 13, another key passage for dealing with the issue of church discipline. This is in specific context to the sin of incest that's being carried out amongst the church in Corinth. And listen to what Paul writes in exhorting this congregation to not let this sin go unaddressed, but to deal with it head-on biblically and in doing so to safeguard the purity and the sanctity of that local church and to, of course, propel that local church's witness as the light of Christ to a watching world. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 5 and following. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned, but instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who was so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. 
I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. What's Paul saying there? He's saying this, that if somebody self-identifies as a follower of Jesus Christ or they're a member of a local church and they are living in an unbroken pattern of sin, a public sin that is a direct assault on the purity of a local church's doctrine or expression of worship, then that person needs to be confronted in light of their sin. And if they are not willing to repent, church discipline needs to be exercised up to the point of excommunication, which is the fourth and final step of the process that Christ gave in Matthew 18, 17. And as we know from the testimony of 2 Corinthians, the Corinthians would go and they would administer church discipline to this unrepentant member, and that member would repent of their sin and then be restored. And I know from my own life, and my wife knows from, from her time at our former church, that there were times when the elders of a local church, after hearing reports of unrepentant sin, they would confront the church member who lived in that season of unrepentant sin. And they would be broken and convicted of their sin after being confronted by the spiritual leadership of our church. And God, by His grace and by the outworking of the Holy Spirit, through this means of grace, would draw that church member to repentance and to full restoration with the congregation. I have seen church discipline, and my wife, Belle, has seen church discipline work for the glory of God and the purity of the local church, just like we find here outlined in the New Testament record. So I hope that's an encouragement to you uh, as, as you think through the relationship between church discipline and the purity of the local church. And before I wrap up my response to this question and move on to the next one, I just want to emphasize one final point on this relationship between church discipline and the local church's purity. My friends, I want to make sure you are vitally aware of this reality, that the purpose of church discipline is not to spiritually abuse Christians who struggle with a particular sin. Church discipline is not for power-hungry local church leadership to get a thrill out of punishing people who struggle with sin. We all have our struggles with sin. But even with that being the case, the purpose of church discipline it's to protect the purity of the body of Christ, to warn the local church of the seriousness of unrepentant sin, and to bear witness before a watching world as to how followers of Christ should view sin, sanctification, and God's holiness. So church discipline is not something that should ever be done from a posture of self-righteousness or from a posture of joy. It should never be a, a thrill for the leadership of a local church to administer church discipline, it should be done with the utmost level of humility, Christ-like love, and a genuine compassion 
for the spiritual well-being and soul of the party who is on the receiving end of church discipline. Church discipline, when done rightly, will purify the local church, both in its constitution amongst members, and it will purify the local church in terms of its witness before a watching world. Very good and important question, and I know that was a pretty long-winded answer that seems to be the theme tonight in my responses to these questions, but nevertheless, I'm grateful for these questions because it just shows that you guys are thinking really well on some highly important and biblically relevant matters that we've been discussing amongst ourselves for the past several months. So I'm very proud of you for bringing these to my attention. Question seven, we have, see, I believe we have three more questions that we're going to cover tonight. I guess two more questions, actually. Sorry about that. Two more questions that we're going to cover tonight. What is your belief on the sacraments? What are they? Who can participate in them? And how often can they be participated in? Well, let me just start with this answer to this question. I'm a Baptist. So as a Baptist, I, I, I personally prefer the term ordinance to sacrament, just because of the connotations that the term sacrament often has in Roman Catholic theology. So just at the outset of responding to this question, I just want to make sure that I'm clear on my term. I, I'm going to be using the term ordinance in answering this question. So for starters, I believe there are two ordinances. So what are the ordinances? Well, I believe there are two ordinances that are inextricably linked with the new covenant epic of redemptive history. So for where we're at in God's redemptive historical economy, we are in the final covenant, the final epoch of God's plan for the course of human history. So in the new covenant, the ordinances that have been given for the people of God to participate in, signs and seals of the new covenant, reminders or pictures of what the new covenant signifies. I believe that to be baptism and the Lord's Supper based on the explicit testimony of the New Testament. So let's start with baptism. What is baptism? Well, as a Baptist, I believe that baptism should be reserved for those who have made a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ. So as such, I am an advocate for what has commonly been called credo-baptism or believer's baptism. So you say credo. Credo, the prefix, means believe, baptism, to baptize, and the Greek term from which we get the English baptism is to immerse. So when I think of baptism, it's a ordinance that is to take place after a person comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, has had their profession of faith validated by the local church, and that the mode of baptism should be done by immersion. And uh, if you want more on the ordinance of baptism and, of course, of the Lord's Supper, which I'm about to answer um, as the second part of uh, my beliefs on the ordinances, would encourage you to read The Baptist Faith and Message 2000. It's not all that can be said about the ordinances of 
baptism and the Lord's Supper, but it's definitely a, a very good summary of my personal beliefs on this, and I think it's a good place for us to go to because as I as I think about our regular attending people on our Thursday night discipleship meetings, I think every single person that comes regularly is a Southern Baptist, which means that the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 is the doctrinal standard to which your church and your denomination embraces. So uh, Baptist Faith and Message 2000 on the ordinance of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Very, very useful there. So let's talk about the Lord's Supper now. Baptism, we've covered that. As far as the Lord's Supper is concerned, I also believe that only those who have made credible professions of faith in Jesus Christ and are not under church discipline are to be the parties who participate in this new covenant ordinance. And while there are good and faithful men who disagree on the frequency that the Lord's Supper should be administered within the local church, I'm personally convinced that the most natural way of reading the book of Acts is to see the Lord's Supper as being a practice that was occurring during every instance when the local church would gather for corporate worship. So if you'd read uh, the latter part of 1 Corinthians 11, there just seems to be this implicit assumption that the Lord's Supper was being administered as frequently as they were coming together. So when God's people in Corinth were meeting, they were participating in this ordinance of the Lord's Supper. So from my perspective, I see the Bible teaching that the Lord's Supper is a powerful means that God uses, along with baptism, to minister to the hearts of his people when they reflect on what those realities point to. So I said baptism and the Lord's Supper are signs and seals of the new covenant. They're pictures. They're symbols of what the new covenant points to. Now, what does the new covenant signify? What does it point to? What does it emphasize? And the new covenant is emphasizing that the blood of Christ and the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and the body of Christ. Okay, let's start. <laughs> Let me, I'm getting a little jumbled here. I'm going to start baptism. Baptism. It, it signifies Christ's death when you are immersed into the water, and it signifies Christ's resurrection when you are raised out of the water. So if you think a good text to really get to the heart of what's being pointed to in baptism, you go to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So crucify with Christ. That's you being immersed into the water. And now it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And then the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. So there's that 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 visual image in baptism of coming out of the grave with Christ resurrected to new life. It's a beautiful picture there. And baptism. Then the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11. And of course, Christ in the upper room also prescribing the Lord's Supper. It's a picture of the body and blood of Christ. The, the body represents Christ's body being sacrificed for sinners. And that really points to his perfect life as well. Christ's body, his, his perfect life in his 30-some years of, of life on this earth, he was in perfect obedience to God's law, thought, word, and deed. 
And when he went to the cross and died as a sacrifice for the sin of his people, all that perfect righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that perfect righteousness is, is able to be credited to the believer through faith as a gift so that by virtue of his broken body on behalf of his people, believers trusting in him receive his perfect righteousness as a gift of God. And then the, the cup, the juice or wine, historically, the blood of Christ, that's that cleansing effect where my sin is washed and credited to Christ at the cross, where he bears God's wrath on behalf of every believer who would ever be saved throughout human history. So by way of faith, a great exchange takes place. That glorious reality of double imputation that we've talked about so often in past gatherings. You have my unrighteousness credited to Christ at the cross, paid for in full at the cross, God's wrath born in the person of Christ in my place. He's treated as if he lived my life of sin. And then Christ's perfect righteousness credited to the believer through faith as a free gift of God's grace, undeserved, unmerited, unearned favor. And now, after receiving that gift, I'm treated by God for all of eternity future as if I had lived Christ's perfect life without sin. So that's a little bit about my convictions regarding the ordinances and what those ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are pointing to. And I trust that all of us, all of us who are involved in this Thursday night discipleship um, meeting schedule, we meet just about every Thursday, I trust that there's a lot of continuity of views on this as Baptists, but nevertheless, uh, I'm glad that this question has been presented so that I could hopefully provide further clarity on what we view in regard to the sacraments or the ordinances of the new covenant. And that takes us now to our last question that we're going to be covering tonight and should put us just over an hour, which is typically our goal for Q&A nights. Final question here, and it's one of my favorite types of questions. I love multi-part questions, which I think uh, the fact that I ask so many multi-part questions is beginning to rub off on some of you. Uh, but anyways, uh, multi-part question here. What was the most positive aspect of your training for gospel ministry, and what would be your greatest piece of advice to aspiring ministers of the gospel? Well, as I said earlier in this Q&A session, I, I'm certainly not a veteran in ministry. I, I'm, I'm two years in, and I've been a believer for about 10 years, maybe a little less than 10 years, somewhere in there, though, um, close to a decade. So I, I, I'm still relatively young in my faith, and I'm certainly young in my ministry endeavors, vocationally speaking, but by God's grace, I've, I've been well-educated. I've had the opportunity now to be in formal theological training for coming up on eight years, and Lord willing, we'll complete my doctorate in two years. So hopefully, um, what little 
experience I have up to this point and, uh, and what knowledge I've been able to obtain up to this point in my Christian journey will be useful in answering this question. I, I think the most important thing I've gained from my training, like I said, coming up on eight years now, um, I think the most important thing I've gained is that, um, that I can have absolute trust in God's word. That would be the most positive aspect I've gained from my training for gospel ministry. That the more I study scripture and the more that I encounter challenges to scripture, the more I find that scripture is trustworthy, that it can be counted on. My friends, I have seen time after time after time demonstrated from the proper exposition of scripture, demonstrated from cogent reasoning and argumentation derived from scripture that the Bible can stand the test of any challenge to its authority, sufficiency, and inerrancy. It is perfect. It is truth. It can and will always come out on top, even when faced with the strongest criticisms. And I believe in a nutshell that at, at the fundamental level, the Christian faith ultimately begins and ends with the ability to trust and rely on the only objective standard that God has provided us to know him and to know how to live a life that's pleasing in his sight. And what is that objective standard? What has God given us to trust and rely on in having a relationship with him and, and being able to live a life that's pleasing in his sight? Well, of course, it's none other than his inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. It's the Bible. So, again, the, the more I'm trained and, and the more exposure that I have to God's word, and even the more exposure I have to those who try to contradict and try to call into question God's word, the more I'm able to grow in my trust in Scripture. The more joy I have in studying Scripture because Scripture always vindicates itself. Christ said that God's people, John 17, 17, God's people will be sanctified by the truth. And what is truth? God's Word is truth. The Word of God is trustworthy. Psalm 19, it's perfect. It is the ultimate objective standard for us in this world as believers. Now, in terms of my advice to aspiring ministers, you know, it's fascinating. I've observed from my own personal experiences, both before and during my now two years in pastoral ministry, that for those who, who don't have confidence in God's Word, you know, I've just talked a lot about why I trust the Bible, why I have confidence in the Word of God. I've Conversely, I've found that those who lack confidence in the Bible, for those who have doubts about the Bible, for those who would call into question or contradict God's Word, I've found that it's because they've not invested adequate time to carefully study what God's Word actually says. And they've not taken the time to go to some of the greatest minds throughout the history of the church who've devoted literally their lives to interpreting and studying the Bible and dictating how it all fits together. They've done all of those things for decades on decades on decades. 
and yet they're neglected by some of the Bible's harshest critics. So whether it be the struggling Christian who's having doubts about the Bible's trustworthiness, or the, the, the open unbeliever who constantly calls into question the trustworthiness of Scripture, people in both of those camps typically, it's one of two things that could be said about them. They've either really not invested enough effort, enough time, enough intentionality in studying God's word for themselves so that the word of God can vindicate itself over and over and over again. And in doing so, bolster that person's confidence in the trustworthiness of the Bible. It's either that reality or it's the reality that, you know, maybe they have studied God's word for themselves, but they just haven't, they haven't been mentored. They haven't been discipled. They haven't been taught the more accurate interpretations and applications of God's word. You know, I think of Apollos, how you had a brilliant man. He, he studied scripture. He was able to glean some insight from scripture. But what do we find in the book of Acts? Priscilla and Aquila had to go and mentor him, disciple him, and, and, and get him more on the right track with his interpretation of God's word. I think that's likewise the case for many today. So, so I, I think just, again, thinking of what would I give as far as counsel and advice to aspiring ministers. Again, little experience here. Take this for what it is. But I would say that aside from ensuring that the spiritual leadership in your local church has affirmed that you meet the character qualifications that are listed in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, that's most important. Get that foundation laid assuming that you meet the qualifications to serve in a capacity of elder, in a capacity of pastor, then my biggest advice would be for you to be a committed student of Scripture and to be a committed student of church history. That's what is going to be most useful for you as you seek to prepare for ministry and as you serve in whatever ministry God would have for you, wherever he would have you to do it, be a committed student of scripture and be a committed student of church history. Your ability to rightly divide the word of truth will be your greatest asset to your teaching, counseling, and administration aspects of pastoral ministry. And when you study church history, you're able to also learn from some of the most godly and most gifted figures to ever serve Christ church. So again, it goes right back to what I was saying. By studying God's word, you're going to grow in your, your, your trust in God's word. You're going to grow in your dependence and hunger for God's word. That's going to be the benefit you get, aspiring minister, from devoting yourself and committing yourself to studying the word of God. And to supplement that, and studying church history, and committing yourself to knowing and gleaning from some of the most godly and gifted figures to ever serve Christ's church, you're going to be able to have a, a deeper and a more robust understanding of Scripture's teaching and, and, of, and on certain core doctrines that have been developed throughout the ages. When you study godly, biblically saturated men and women from church history, that's only going to increase your trust in God's word and it's only going to increase your effectiveness for ministry because you're going to learn from their 
areas of success. You're going to learn from their areas of shortcomings, maybe from some of their failures and mistakes. So I can't stress enough. Be diligent in studying God's word. Be faithful to learn from those who have gone before us. I can't begin to express how much wisdom and encouragement I have gleaned from saints who have long preceded me in death. And my friend, if you, listener, if you're aspiring to pastoral ministry, rest assured that you can likewise do the same if you're willing to put in the time and the effort in doing so. You put in the time and effort to study scripture, you put in the time and effort to study godly men from generations past, you will receive profound encouragement in your faith and you will receive profound wisdom as you seek to be a faithful minister of the gospel wherever God would call you. And with that being said, that brings us to the conclusion of the questions that have been presented to me for tonight's question and answer session. So I do hope to the listener that you have enjoyed all that was discussed over the duration of tonight's discipleship meeting and hope that you will, um, for those of you who regularly attend these gatherings on Thursdays, hope you'll be with us next Thursday as we resume our study of the book of James, making our way through the sixth section, third chapter of the book of James. Hope you will be involved with that study as we get it rocking and rolling again a week from today. So having said all that, as we draw our time together to a close, allow me to conclude with a word of prayer, and we will wrap up tonight's gathering. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you for your faithfulness in allowing us to enjoy the privilege to work through each of the thought-provoking questions that were presented over the duration of tonight's gathering. And God, it is a great source of comfort to know that your word is truth and that in its going forth, Father, your word never fails to accomplish the purposes that you ordain for it to fulfill from before the foundation of the world never returns void. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to write the eternal truths of Scripture upon our hearts so that we would not sin against you and that we would be ever more motivated to be faithful ambassadors wherever you call us to serve. So I pray for your blessing over every person who has tuned in for this question and answer session and for those who are a part of these weekly Thursday night discipleship meetings. Lord, I pray and ask that you would enable each of us to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ until he returns or calls us home to glory. And as we continue to draw closer to Sunday this week, Father, may our hearts be further prepared to ascribe praise, honor, and adoration to you alongside the members of our local churches. Indeed, Father, to you alone with your Son and Holy Spirit be the glory forevermore. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.